Well, good morning. My name is Ben Robertson, and I am a campus minister with Reform University Fellowship over at the College of William and Mary. And uh, I know most of you, but just wanted to introduce myself again in case we've not met. And if you're here from out of town, welcome, and we're glad you're here. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. While you're turning there, uh, since we're reading towards the end of the book of Colossians, uh, the first few chapters, Paul is writing from prison to a church in Colossae, and he has told them about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is above all else, and that he has brought redemption, forgiveness, salvation, and has grafted people who believe in him, who have faith in him, into his own self. He uses the phrase, in him, all through this book about us being united to Christ by faith so that what is true of Christ is true of us in a declarative way. And as he turns here in chapters 3 and 4, what is true of Christ is becoming true of us in a functional way. It's shaping who we are. It's bringing about actual transformation in the life of those who trust him. And so we pick up at chapter 4 as Paul talks about our actions and our speech for those who are believers in the church towards what he calls outsiders. We'll talk about that as we read it. So Colossians chapter 4, I hear the pages slowing down. I think we're all there. Colossians chapter 4, starting at verse 2. And Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that is Timothy and himself, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that by your Spirit you would open the doors of our hearts, that you would give us clarity of understanding, and that you would give us change, that we, in our actions and in our speech and in our disposition towards others, that we would bear the image of Christ that we have been given. We ask this in your name. Amen. Um, About eight years ago, I was living in St. Louis. I was a seminary student there. Seminary is grad school uh, for pastors. And I was there in training, and at the time I was doing an internship uh, at the church where Dawn and I were members, and my job was to do something kind of like what I'm doing here. It was to start some campus ministry work at a little school called Webster University um, in St. Louis. It's a school of about 1,200 students, something like that, small uh, liberal arts school. And um, I had been on campus uh, for all of maybe a week, week and a half. Had met with a few students, uh, had led one Bible study, and as I was hanging out on campus uh, trying to meet students, I saw the school newspaper. And I read, and just for context again, my name is Ben Robertson, I read this headline on the front page of the paper. Robertson proves, think before you speak. I thought, like, I just got here, you know, like, what did I say? What did I do? You know, like, um... Uh, oh no, you know, this is gonna, you know, you see your name on a big headline, and I, I looked at it. Um, lo and behold, it was not about me. I was glad to learn in, in the midst of my uh, myopia and self-centeredness. Uh, of course, it's not about you, Ben. No one knows who you are. Um, 
it's not about, it wasn't about Ben Robertson, it was about Pat Robertson. Um, now, before I read an excerpt from this article, I want to say a couple things about Pat Robertson. Um, he's off in the punching bag, right? He says things publicly that get in the newspapers that um, are often regrettable. Um, if a couple examples about, this was before Haiti, but you know, the, the earthquake in Haiti being because of a deal that they ma had made with the devil. Um, if your wife has Alzheimer's, it's okay to divorce, things like that. Um, but this uh, was a different situation, actually a much lighter offense. But while he's off in the punching bag, I do want to say, uh, Pat Robertson has helped a lot more orphans than I ever will. I'm not trying to uh, jump on him or, or mistreat him, but at the same time acknowledging that he often says things that are regrettable that get publicized widely. And this was one of the first times I'd ever seen this uh, happen in print in a very interesting situation. So I want to read this to you. Um, some of the language, it's, it's a college newspaper and it's a little, uh, shall we say, a little immature. But um, I'll read it and it, we'll get a sense of it. It's been over a week since conservative Christian and 700 Club host Pat Robertson blurted out on the air that the American government should oblige the paranoia of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez by, quote, taking him out. Already Robertson is reeling from his apparent stamp of approval on assassination attempts of foreign leaders, saying the press misconstrued his comments and he never used the term assassination as such. But really, how much more blatant could you get? And then she goes on. She, she describes uh, his his apology or what she perceives as a lack thereof, and then she says this. Will public figures of any political or religious persuasion ever be capable of simply admitting that they said something downright dumb? Not claiming that facts were misconstrued or that they were misquoted or pulling from Robertson's latest excuse that he said it out of frustration. How about a simple, hey, sometimes stupid things fly out of my mouth. I was wrong and I apologize. That's all it would take, a little honesty and an apology. Not that death threats should be taken lightly, but the public might have more empathy for a public figure who was forthright instead of always trying to be shown in the right light. Everyone said something dumb before. You hear what she's saying? What she's asking for? Honesty, transparency, humility, and her claim is that I'm not seeing it, and she's not just taking shots at Robertson at this point. She's saying, across the board in the leadership that I see around me, this is about eight years ago, I'm not hearing that. I'm not seeing that. Now, why do I read this to you? Um, as uh, if you are here and you are a believer in Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, we have to come to the reality and the acceptance that at this point and stage of American culture, this article very much represents how you are perceived. Uh, several years back, a book titled Unchristian came out, put out by the Barna Group, where they had done surveys of people's perceptions, outsiders, as Paul calls them here, who are not Christians or not consider themselves religious or part of the church, what their perception of Christians is. In 1996, it was 85% positive. 1996. A decade later, it was incredibly negative. In fact, when given a list of traits to choose how they would describe Christians as they perceive them. The top three things on the list, first, number one, coming in at 91% of people chose this. Anti-homosexual. And anti-homosexual defined as showing disdain towards people who practice homosexuality. Number two on the list, 87% chose judgmental. 85% hypocritical. 
75% too political. Do you feel that? Now, there may be reasons we could say there's this, there's that, that's perception, it's not reality, let's defend. But just for the moment, let's embrace the fact that that is the public perception. And so Paul's words here, in the way that we should conduct ourselves, in the way that our speech should be, is pretty much the opposite of those, isn't it? Um, and we are in a climate, in a culture, in a time where if you are a Christian, you have to take into account, as he says, conduct yourselves wisely. To be wise, you have to know how you're perceived and how you're known and examine, are these perceptions reality? And should they change and be transformed? And Paul's original audience had a culture that wasn't exactly in favor of them either. You know, the early church was accused of being incestuous cannibalists. Everyone's calling themselves brothers and sisters, but they're still getting married. What's that? And they say that they eat the body and blood of their Messiah. What's going on there? It's not a great reputation. They were pagans in the mind of their context. They were up against hard things, and so are you if you're a believer. This text is about how the gospel shapes our actions and words towards outsiders. And it's this idea of an outward focus, I'll use the word evangelistic conversation that happens, that would reflect and demonstrate as well as contain the message of the gospel to others. Now I want to pause for a second. I'm using the word outsiders, and Paul calls people outsiders. And if you are here um, and you are not a believer, you might at that very moment say, see, this is exactly what we don't like. This whole outsider idea, it's exclusive. Christianity is exclusive. Insiders, outsiders. Um, really quickly, one, we, we want Grace Covenant to be a church where everyone can come and hear the gospel. And we're glad that you're here. If that is your objection, and we're not here to stand up and say, well, the outsiders, the outsiders are here, so let's, you know, exclude them. Um, you can't come to our cookout tonight. Um, no, you are welcome here. We are glad that you are here. I would simply say this, that all groups of people have insiders and outsiders. Uh, if you're a part of a swing dance club, there's insiders. I'm, out, I'm an outsider because I can't swing. Now, you would say, no, you could learn and you should come. Uh, but in the same way that Christianity, the sense in which Paul is talking about insiders and outsiders, uh, Christianity, more than any other group, I mean, swing club is evangelistic, I guess, when they want to recruit people. Uh, but Christianity has the express purpose and goal of incorporating outsiders so that they would become insiders. Not that they would be projects, but that they would be friends and family, drawing them into Christ. just want to point that out. Is exclusivity is another top objection. But then that raises another objection, doesn't it? A lot of objections to clear out of the way, don't I? Um, there's the objection of trying to make out, of, of having outsiders, but then there's the objection of trying to make outsiders insiders, what we call evangelism. Evangelism is kind of a bad word right now. Did you know that? It's not a popular idea. Proselytizing, trying to make other people think the way that you think and believe the way that you believe instead of letting them believe and think the way that they think and act and do. We're not allowed to do that, right? It's not a good thing. In fact, one of the, major, the, one of the chapters in, the, in this book, Unchristian, is just titled, Get Saved! Exclamation point. And this describes this idea that's very often true of Christians turning people into projects, right? And just trying to get them to join our ranks instead of loving them as the person that they are. But I want to read to you a quote from Penn Jillett. Do you know who that is? Penn and Teller, the magicians, the performers uh, out in Vegas. Famous guy, Penn Jillett, and he's actually a very outspoken atheist. And he has a video blog where he tells stories into the camera. And a, a few years back, he told a story about a man who walked up to him after one of his shows 
and started up a conversation and complimented his performance, clearly understood kind of what Penn did as an artist, and then he just said, look, I don't want to be offensive, but I want to give you something that's very important to me, and he gave him a little uh, New Testament and book of Psalms, a little Bible to set up. I know that you're an atheist, but I wanted you to have this. I didn't know if you had a Bible. Here it is. And Penn said this. He was moved by it. Um, he was touched. And he says this. I've always said, you know, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. He's an atheist. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, or whatever, and you think that, well, it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. You hear that? He then went on to say, and I'm still an atheist, and I'm sure that there is no God, you know. Um, and then Christians actually took that video clip and took it out of context and showed it in our churches, and people were like, Pendul, it's a Christian now, and um, we did the very thing we get accused of, you know, um, being hypocritical. Go team. Um, but do you hear what he's saying? He, he, he recognized that this man, even though a stranger was doing this in love, that Penn was not a project, but a person and a friend. And love wants the best for others. If you have an objection to this idea of evangelizing, I understand it, both if you're a believer who's afraid to talk about it, or if you're an unbeliever who doesn't like to hear it, understand that that is simply the, that is the posture of Scripture. When you love another person, you want what is best. And the claim of the Bible and of Christians is that the best thing in the universe is Jesus Christ, and we want you to have him. And that's what Paul is talking about. So all of that was warm-up for what's in the text here. All of that was waggling on the T. Here is what the text says. Uh, this, the Bible says quite a bit about evangelism, but in this text I want to focus on two simple principles, talking about evangelism or sharing the gospel, talking about Christ with others. One, talking to the God that you love about the people we love. That we talk to the God that we love about the people we love. And two, talking to the people that we love about the God that we love. Talking to the people that we love about the God that we love. First, talking to the God that we love. Um, did you notice what Paul said? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, in thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Um, Prayer is a recognition of dependence. I was reading a book uh, just yesterday on the pastoral ministry and how we as pastors, I'm in pastoral ministry, uh, confess regularly that we struggle to pray, that we are too busy with the work of ministry to pray rather than viewing prayer itself as the work of ministry. And the book quoted a pastor who said, I'm not going to say this about you all to the other pastors in his group, but lack of prayer is downright arrogance. It is an assumption that we can do it, but we pray because we know that we can't. And do you notice who just asked for prayer from Colossae? The Apostle Paul. And he asked for prayer for two things, for open doors and for clear words. Think about that. Paul, the greatest church planter in the history of the world, 
is saying, I need prayer to even have the opportunity. That's what open doors mean. It's just an opportunity to talk about the gospel. And then he says, I need prayer so that I can speak clearly. Paul had a hard time speaking clearly. Are you ever afraid to talk to some about, someone about Christ because you're afraid that you won't explain it very well? Take courage. So did Paul. And I can imagine the Colossians reading this letter and be like, Paul needs help making it clear. Paul, didn't you just write this letter? Right? Like, Paul, you wrote the book. Like, you literally wrote the book. You know, he wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. He wrote more about the gospel in scripturated by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. But Paul said, I need prayer to speak clearly. Well, how much more do we? So we should be both humbled and encouraged by this idea. We need prayer for the opportunity. The opportunity can't even happen. We can't even speak clearly without it. And he also says that he might unveil the mystery of God to unbelievers, that they would see, that they would be transformed. And that's where Penn's analogy is a little bit off, right? The truck bearing down on someone. The problem is evangelism is not the same thing as tackling someone in front of a truck. We often treat it that way which I think is why uh, there are so many cultural objections to it. But Paul has told us earlier in chapter 2, 13, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God made us alive together with him. You and I are incapable, no matter how clearly we speak, we cannot bring the dead to life. Only God can do that. And so we pray that he would. We talk to the God that we love about the people that we love. Do you want your friends to know Jesus, your family members, your neighbors, your coworkers who do not? Pray. Pray for open doors, opportunities. Pray for clear words for yourself or for others. And pray for real change. The gospel calls us to talk to the God that we love about the people that we love and, part two, to talk to the people we love about the God that we love talking to the people that we love, about the God that we love. We don't just pray. We don't just wait forever. It does say that you would be able to answer each one, which assumes there's a conversation and questions being asked. But we don't just pray for the, uh, the door to open and that one day the person would suddenly just stop and say, you are such a wonderful person, and please, please tell me how it is that I could be like you. Um, please share the gospel with me right now. I mean, that's, that's sort of the open door that we all pray that would happen, and until that happens, we're not going to do it. The irony of that, of course, is that at, at that point, functionally, our gospel isn't Christ. Our gospel is ourselves, right? Please, you know, tell me how I can be like you. Well, you too can be wonderful like me um, if you would just believe these things. No, but, but we, we, we speak. We conduct ourselves, which is all of life, but then he goes on particularly to talk about speech, and how does the gospel transform our speech? What does gospel-transformed speech look like? Speech shaped by Jesus. He tells us three things, and we've talked a little about the first one already. It's clear, it's gracious, and it's salty. It's clear, gracious, and salty. First of all, clear. This whole book is about God revealing the mystery of the gospel. There's this idea of mystery and God making himself known. And so our speech about the gospel should be clear. The gospel is all about God's self-disclosure, his, him, him making himself known to humans. Which means, if we want our speech to be clear, that we've both prayed about it and thought about it. We've thought about it. 
It's not just a canned message that you can learn. There's a lot of books that give helpful tips and videos and instructions that can tell you how to concisely explain the essence of the gospel, and those things are helpful. But clearly, Paul is talking about more of an everyday, in-and-out, real-life conversation than a quick pamphlet that we pull out of our pocket or a, a jingle that we sing to convince people. It's a thought through part of our lives. Let me ask you this. Can you explain the gospel in terms that other people can understand? Um, in seminary, I had to uh, write a paper for a course on apologetics and evangelism where you had to, on one page, explain the gospel to someone who had no vocabulary for understanding the Bible. It was incredibly difficult. One of the hardest assignments I had in seminary. Can you do that, or are you so buried in cliches that everything you say is meaningless to the uninitiated, to what Paul calls the outsider? Does this sound like you? When you're at small group, say, home fellowship group, it's time to share prayer requests. Share prayer requests. What does that mean? Um, you know, I'm just really struggling with my walk with the Lord, and I don't want to lose my testimony, so I'd really covet your prayers. And I'm just hoping some people would ask Jesus into their heart and receive Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior so that they would go to be with the Lord, and in the meantime, that God would put a hedge of protection around them and give them traveling mercies until they get saved, and just really see God working mightily so that I could share my faith. And I've just really been under conviction. I have a real burden for the world and the real need of fellowship and just want to witness more. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, we don't know. That's nonsense. What are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, now, of course, there's nothing wrong with any of those phrases in and of themselves or using those phrases, but it's as if when we get locked into the string of cliches, our eyes glaze over and we instinctively talk as if we don't actually believe what we're saying, even if we really do. Um, and the worst part is that it is completely incomprehensible to the uninitiated. Not just to people who aren't Christians, but even Christians who study the Bible but have not taken the time to immerse themselves into the bizarro world of the Christian subculture. Right? Um, and we may need to repent of hiding so deep in our tribal enclave that we have made ourselves incapable of communicating the simple beauty of the gospel to others. Quick sidebar, this whole idea of conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders assumes that the church at Colossae is relationally and meaningfully engaged with those outsiders, that they are part of their life, that they are their friends and coworkers, that they know and love them. And notice that it's in the plural. It's not just that you as individuals conduct yourself wisely, but you together, Church of Colossae, conduct yourselves wisely towards those that are around you. Here's an idea. The Bible doesn't command this. It's an idea. Next time you're having a cookout with, quote, church friends, invite a couple neighbors too. You might have to, the sad reality is, Warn your church friends. <laughs> Don't forget Colossians 2, 4, 2 through 6. Don't say hedge of protection, you know, tonight. Um, that's, not, that's not a thing. Um, 
Because Jesus says, Father, I pray that my people would be one that the world may know that you sent me. In other words, when people, when God's people are loving one another, it has evangelistic impact. You know who lives in your Christian friends? The Holy Spirit. Do you want your friends who don't know Christ to know the Holy Spirit? Introduce them to people who carry him with them. That's, that's how the early church grew. Paul is assuming that we are engaged together and individually with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends, with our family. Can you speak clearly and are you engaged so that you can? Running out of time here. I'm going to keep moving. There's lots of ways to be unclear, but I will, I'll leave it at that. Um, next, it's not only that it would be clear, but it would be gracious. Gracious. Grace is more than standing up for the truth. It contains truth, but gracious speech is not just telling people that they are wrong or in sin, but extends to them forgiveness and acceptance, even when they don't deserve it, and that is why it's called grace. Um, Christ has been gracious to us. When you speak and people spend time with you, do they go away saying, you know, I know that they have different beliefs than I have and very strong moral convictions about what they believe and the way that they live their lives. And at the same time, I feel totally free to be myself around it. And I never feel judged. That's how people felt around Christ, the holiest being in the universe. Completely holy, completely moral, completely standing up for the truth. And alcoholics and gamblers and tax collectors and prostitutes loved to be in his company. I always feel accepted, but strangely challenged at the same time by his speech. Gracious, I'll keep moving. Salty. What does salty mean? Let your, let your, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. It has two senses to it, and he uses the phrase seasoned with salt. We know it's both. Salt had two functions. You probably know this. It's a preservative of rotting meat. It keeps the effects of death from happening, and it enhances flavor. It tastes, makes things taste better. Is your speech, to put it another way, life-giving? Preventing decay, enhancing flavor, making life better. Um, my wife loves me. I grew up in Alabama, and she made grits for me the other night. And it's seasoned with salt, you know? Like, that's... People who say they don't like grits don't actually... Like, no one likes grits. We like, we like butter and salt. Um, and it, the grits just mediate that into us. Um, that's the secret. Um, is your speech mouth-watering to others and life-giving, where they walk away saying, that was humanizing and restorative and encouraging, and I think I want to believe what that person believes. Um, I mentioned an article that I read, and within the same week that I saw the article with my name, I saw another article in a different publication in St. Louis that had something that looked kind of like my picture. There was like this caricature of a guy with a bald, like a shaved head, um, and it was about a guy that I actually went to seminary with that some of you know from your mission trip last summer, Mike Kitka. He's the pastor of the church in New York that we went, we sent a team to help. Up? Yeah, there it is. Um, thanks, I didn't know that got through. Cool. Yeah, that's Mike. Um, I want to read this. This was published in something called the Riverfront Times, which is a 
publication in St. Louis. Tell you a little about the Riverfront Times. Uh, they publish a lot of articles with lots of expletives in it. Um, there's a lot of advertisements for strip clubs and overt uh, prostitution and other things contained in it. It's a, it's a, um, you, it's a read with discernment uh, publication. And then um, a friend of mine showed me this article. I'm going to read it to you. It's called The Saint. With his shaved head, goatee, and sturdy frame, he looked more like a hitman than a seminarian. But he had that cool, serene presence of a Jedi. A believer who found soulful sanctuary in a religion that had called him to his life's work. I'd known him in New York, and it was by coincidence that we both wound up living in St. Louis. Despite my reluctance to fully embrace any form of organized religion, a fact for which he allowed generous understanding without condescension. Hear the grace? He facilitated for me a kind of guidance. He was a person on whom I could dump all my wayward spiritual questions. Or if nothing else, he'd supply me with optimism when my faith in humanity had gone missing. Hear the saltiness? We began by extolling Steely Dan lyrics that night. But somehow our discussion became more about morality and the inevitability of sin. Where does morality fit into a society where religion is less important than it used to be? What reason do we have to be moral or even good? if we don't believe in God or anything else? Why conform to a law if the lawgiver has vanished? He smiled coyly. He was always up for this kind of questioning so that you may be prepared to give an answer to those around you. Close to where we sat, two people happily embraced. We watched them momentarily, two people swept into a euphoric state vicariously. This may come as a shock to you, he began in response to my question, but I don't believe there is any reason to be moral or good if God doesn't exist. If there is no lawgiver, we should party, live for pleasure, and work for goals without any reference to moral or spiritual guidance. He went on to explain that the Bible says just as much, that the Apostle Paul said that the physical resurrection of the dead is a, of Jesus from the dead is a critical linchpin to the question of living the moral life. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, faith is futile and we should just live solely to please ourselves because death has the final say in life. But the Christian take on things is that death isn't the way it's supposed to be. True ethics is all about being truly human, he went on. It's not about being forced to obey some arbitrary cosmic rules. Ethics shows us the way things ought to be. Get on a skating rink without skates because you demand your freedom and autonomy. Fine. But without skates, you're not going to enjoy the freedom to move on the ice the way that you want to. Isn't that a beautiful illustration? Isn't that super clear about how we think the world works and how God engages us? Not just telling the culture that it's wrong, that we don't want our friends and people we love to break their nose on the ice. Isn't that great? Tuck that one in your pocket. It's a good one. There was a pause. I looked around for the couple we'd seen earlier. They had vanished. Taking ethics from God he went on, is like taking skates from the owner of the rink. End of article. I want to read that to you. I, th I think it's an incredible example of exactly what we're reading. Not just the conversation with his friend, but its location in this publication called the Riverfront Times of salt and light and grace and clarity and the gospel right in the midst of the culture around him. So, it's an example of it, but how do we do it very quickly? How do we do it? This is what... It, we should be clear, we should be gracious, we should be salty, but how and why? Uh, first, being clear, 
We are clear, as I hinted at before, we are clear because God has been clear with us. Uh, Paul has talked about it. We can't strip this passage out of Colossians. I'll quote just from Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God is the invisible God made clear, made evident, made visible. 2.9, in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. The theological word for that is incarnation. Jesus moves towards us so that we can see the face of God in him, so that God can make himself clear, that he can unveil the mystery of the gospel. Gracious. Why are we gracious? We are gracious in our speech because Christ has been gracious with us. 2.14, he canceled the record of debt, nailing it to the cross. It's all through this book. We could read half of the verses in Colossians to talk about Christ being gracious and forgiving us, but particularly through his crucifixion, nailing it to the cross. Because of the crucifixion, our words should be gracious. Because of the incarnation, they should be clear. And finally, they should be salty or life-giving. Because of the resurrection, 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. New life, resurrection. All of that is yours in Christ. His incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And as we steep on those things, as we marinate in the reality of who Christ is, as we want to shape our entire lives around his pattern and his person, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, take form in our words and our conduct towards others because that is God's conduct towards us. And it changes who we are. It's the whole argument of this entire book. That the person of Christ would transform us to be people whose lives and words reflect it. All of that is yours if your faith is in Christ and all of that can be yours if it is not. If you put your faith in him. He has come for you to make himself known. He has died for you to be gracious to you and to forgive you. And he has risen again so that you can walk in newness of life for eternity. Christ has come to do this for you. Trust in him and believers walk as if it is true. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are good to us, that you are the gracious one, that you are the kind one, that you have made yourself known. We ask that we would be a people who more and more reflect that to those that we know and love all around us. We pray this.